I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Our guest today is Darren Perry. He's a professor of Native American history at Utah State University. He's also the former chairman of the Northwest Band of the Shoshone Nation. And I got to tell you, he's a gifted storyteller and communicator. He's here today to talk about an indigenous perspective on land management, especially at a time, Peter, of changing climate. Right. And I think this is going to be a an important conversation because we're both from European ancestry. Our approach to land management is a tad bit different. Yes, and we'll dig into how and why. This show, when we started it years ago now, the idea of giving voice to different ideas right. and getting that in, in sort of the public square so we can have these conversations. I, I think this is a topic that I've wanted to get to for a while. It's and so, important and valuable. There's no doubt about it. Well, Darren will join us in a little bit, but Peter's got some nature news in his hand here. What you got? So we're going to talk about this little creature called the Tully Monster. Tully Monster. We're going to try to describe it via radio, but it is an amazing little critter that is about 300 million years old. So it's a fossil. It's a fossil. And a Francis Tully in the 1950s discovered in Illinois around the Mason Creek area. Yeah, Mason Creek, close to Chicago. Right. And since that discovery, there's it's a perplexing little critter, and nobody really knows what it is. There's been discussion that it's a vertebrate, and then there's been a discussion that it's an invertebrate. And when you see the picture, maybe the discussion that it's an actual alien should come in. Okay, so you've got too. a picture in right. your hand here. Right. Can you do your best to describe it? Okay, I'm going to do – so the thing is about 15 centimeters long, which for those who are still stuck in the uh, English <laughs> measurement world, it's about six inches about in six length. six inches, yeah. Right. And the back end kind of looks like a squid. As you move forward, you've got these two stalks that come out perpendicular from the squid-like, kind of look like eyes. Okay. And then there's this really long, almost skinny arm-like thing with a beak at the end, yeah, kind of like a little grabbers that people will reach out to grab. It and looks like something Dr. Seuss would draw. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. It's not right. And um, <laughs> It's not right. <laughs> I, you said Dr. Seuss. I was kind of thinking of someone like H.P. Lovecraft and his <laughs> weird outer god type thing. Okay. So, but they really don't know what it is. And the difficulty with this is since it was discovered, there's been – all kinds of research. They've examined it and they haven't been able to reach a consensus. Oh, yeah, we've got evidence that it's a vertebrate. No, maybe it, we've got evidence that it's an invertebrate. And so, well, the problem just is, don't that, know. I mean, the fossils are squished flat. Yeah. So and there's it's, not a lot to really look at. Yeah. Right. And it's not like there's a bunch of them all over the place. And so we've got a group of scientists from Japan that actually studied 150 of these little Tully monsters, and they compared them to 70 other fossils found in that same area in the yep. Maison Creek. And they used 3D laser scanners. Technology is awesome. And they were able <laughs> to kind of color code the different shapes. And what they found is that along that head-like appendage that sticks out from the body, they found that there's these little tiny irregularities or segments. And these segments aren't found on any type of vertebrae 
type fossil. They're pretty sure now that it's an invertebrate. Okay, not a backboned Not animal. a backboned gotcha. critter, but they really have no idea where to put this non-vertebrate marine critter in the non-vertebrate marine right. lineage. So who is it related to? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know yet. This study just came out, the one you're talking yeah. about. Maybe three years ago, there was another study that was published by a lot of paleontologists, and they said definitively, this must be a vertebrate animal. I don't know how to take this. Every couple of years, it's, we got a definitive answer, and it's completely opposite of what the last people said. Right. So, Stay tuned. Give same it three totally more years. monster channel, same totally monster time. It is a cool fossil because it's just so bizarre looking. Yeah. Isn't nature great? It is wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to deal with some very interesting topic on land management from an indigenous perspective. Our trivia question today relates. The question is, when was the Colorado River Compact signed? This is all important document that determines how water is used along the Colorado River. What year was that actually signed? When we come back from the break, Darren Perry joins us to talk about land management from a Native American perspective. Please stay tuned. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome today's guest, Darren Perry. He's a professor of Native American history at Utah State University, and he's the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. First off, thanks for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. It's good to be here, and it's a topic I love to talk about, so thank you. Darren, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I was born in northern Utah. I was raised, I think, in a pretty privileged family. My father was an educator. I lived in the northwestern band of Shoshones, were one of the few tribes that did not go to a reservation. So we pretty much assimilated into the culture, uh, this Mormon culture here in northern Utah. So while I go to reservations all the time today, I wasn't raised in that environment. So I was raised in a normal high school, went to normal schools with everybody. That came at a cost. You know, it costs you culture and it costs you your language identity. But for the most part, uh, thank goodness, I was able to learn at the feet of my grandmother, a tribal elder, our knowledge holder and keeper. Her name was May Timbimbu Perry. She'd been to boarding school, and that kind of shaped who she was. But thank goodness I was able to 
learn at her feet as she had learned from the feet of her grandfather who had learned at the feet of his grandfather. So that oral history, that oral way of learning was passed down. And I was lucky enough to be probably one of the last generations to take advantage of that. But I attended the University of Utah and Weber State University, wanted to be a, a high school history teacher. And uh, kind of life has taken me down all kinds of different paths these days. But thank goodness I've been able to talk a lot about not only the Bear River Massacre and the history of our people, but start talking, you know, in the last couple of years about the environment and our stewardship that we have over the land. And and really what got me focused on that is, is I live not very far from the Great Salt Lake, which is the largest saline lake, but also it's in extreme trouble. And if, if that goes away, there's going to be serious health consequences all along the Wasatch Front and anybody probably east of of Utah because of the toxic dust storms that could be prevalent if that lake uh, goes away. So I just thought, you know, my people had always had a strong stewardship towards the land. And as I listened to the narrative that everybody was talking about, they weren't talking about the land in a way that I think it needs to be shaped. Uh, we're talking mostly about scientific ways of trying to solve the problem. And uh, while that's needed and wonderful, it's not what's going to change the future for all of us. I think we need both. You know, I'm just going to spend the last 20 years of my life, I hope I make it that long, to making sure that we're doing everything we can to heal Mother Earth in a way that allows her to sustain life. And look, it's not for me. I've lived a pretty good life, but it's for my kids and grandkids and the future generations. Let's talk about some differences uh, in ways of thinking about the land and the environment and how humanity fits within that environment. There's this idea, I think, that's prevalent uh, from a, a colonial perspective that when colonization happened out west, there existed an environment that was wild, untouched, untrammeled, and that now it's somehow different than it was. And there is this notion of purity or wildness. Uh, can you speak mm -hmm. to that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, the people that first, and <laughs> I use this tongue-in-cheek, discovered America, Right. <laughs> you know, the, they always talk about this wild and untouched land. And, and in reality, uh, what they discovered was a land that had been taken care of for thousands of thousands of years by indigenous peoples who knew how to cultivate the land, knew how to let it rest during certain times, used prescribed burns to uh, foster the plant growth that they needed. They, they discovered orchards and other places that told of a people that were transparent in this ecosphere and it wasn't untouched or wild, but it was a result of a broad range of indigenous land management techniques that had been practiced for thousands of years. And so, yeah, we, we certainly strayed away from that. You know, people don't understand indigenous perspectives to land because I think a big, big misunderstanding is people thought 
that the Native Americans felt that they owned the land. I don't know of any Native American or indigenous people who have ever felt that they were owners. The lands are owned by our creator and were given to us to be carefully and lovingly maintained. And so we were caretakers and not owners. And that's the distinction that is not really uh, understood today as we view the world. We live in a world of ownership and development and extraction and depletion, all for the sake of short-term profits. And so when you view, when your worldview is that, and the land is there for your use to make a dollar on, absolutely you're going to take care of it in a different way or not take care of it in a different way and use it for your own purposes. And Native Americans and indigenous peoples all over this world really have a different mindset when it comes to that. And, and so the lands that colonizers first put their eyes on were not untouched or wild, but, uh, Something that we did that would maintain life for forever because we needed it to. And so we don't live in that space anymore, I'm afraid. You know, I always kind of looked at it as um, where if you have ownership, like you said, it's, quote, yours. You don't necessarily live within that system and, and it almost puts you above that system, you know, this is for me and I get to choose what I want to do with it. And you don't really consider the repercussions. But when you kind of remove that ownership idea out of the equation, now you're living within that system. And I think you're a lot more aware of what your actions are doing and the results of those actions. And you end up taking better care, you know, because you're part of the system and you're not removed from it. You're not above it or behind, you're right there within that system. I like that approach. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing my grandmother taught me that always resonated with me, we'd go on plant walks, we'd go pick choke cherries when they were ripe in late summer. But she always, always referred to uh, our plants and animals and water as our non-human kinfolk. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Growing up and now, you know, as I look back on kinship and who, who are kin, well, they're your closest relatives. They're people you love, people you hold a great amount of respect for. And so when she's talking about a plant as our non-human kinfolk, you tend to look at that in a different way. You look at it from a different lens that doesn't allow you to abuse it because you wouldn't abuse those people you love. And so when you look at it that way, the environment that we live in today has as many rights as, as we do. Well, that's the way it should be. And I think that's how indigenous people though have always looked at it. You know, I think Western values teach us that we can use this, it's ours, we can use it for extraction, depletion, for our development, and for our personal gain. Indigenous worldviews say that the land and water is only provided to us by our creator to be carefully and lovingly maintained. And indigenous people have always looked at it as, uh, 
what is our responsibilities towards it and what are our obligations obligations is a big word to native peoples we live uh, in a community that that really stresses obligations to the past present and future and obligations to our communities and when you look at it that way you tend to take care of it differently the you know the iroquois let me just say one thing about this the iroquois nation they have the most beautiful concept when it comes to decision making their their leaders don't make any decisions without considering what effect that decision would have on seven generations ahead i mean that's mind blowing to me but think about the think about the implications for our future if our leaders govern that way but they don't no and i think the the idea of and, and looking at nature and our environment as kinfolk you know as parents, our goal is to make sure our kids are in a better situation than we are, right? We want to put them in a position for success. And if we're looking at the environment as part of our family and a part of our kin, we want to do things that give our habitats that we live in the chance for that their best success. And it totally upends the paradigm of how we approach the environment, habitat, and conservation. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it, again, it, it comes down to point of reference and short-term versus long-term thinking and the implications down line of choices you make now. As you're saying, seven generations out is a long time to think about. And a lot of the drivers, it seems, economic drivers, resource needs drivers are all in the next five to 10 years, right? And so how do we shift our, our mindset to, to think about the immediate needs, but not to forget about the long-term needs of the environment? It, it makes me think a little bit about the idea of water rights. And I know this is something that, you know, coming mm-hmm. back to Great Salt Lake and it's slow, maybe not so slow evaporation, but, you know, we're living at a time when the Colorado River, uh, its supply is dwindling and its demand and use is increasing. Talk a little bit about this, the concept of first in time, first in right. That's a, a real Western concept, it seems. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish that was the case. But, you know, right? <laughs> first in time, first in right is the law of the land, except if you were Native American. And I mean, think about that. And so... You know, to come up with a statement like that is kind of just to me is like, seriously? Right. I mean, that's that's what you're going to say, really. And I mean, when they met at Bishop's Lodge in New Mexico and, and crafted this whole thing, one, they gave out twice as many, twice as much water rights than was ever there. And but, you know, you look at this in all the states that were invited to the table uh, seven representatives from the states and Herbert Hoover, they're hammering this deal out to how we're going to divide up this water. But you know who wasn't there? It was the 30 federally recognized tribes that called the Colorado River Basin home. And you know what? It's always made me feel that first in time, first in right thing. It's, it's made me think, uh, what if the indigenous voices had been given a seat at the table, you know, that long ago, would we be in the severe crisis as we're in today with not only the environment that we live in, but with our water, 
and other things. And so, you know, I live in Utah here. I live in the second driest state in the country. And we have science the hell out of water. We have done everything we can to get as much water as we can, manufacturing it in ways that, I mean, indigenous peoples have never, ever thought about doing. And, and it seems like we're in a time and space now where the only solution to that problem is to throw more science at it. But, but let me say this, that's not the answer. You know, all the science in the world is not going to make up for our selfish behaviors. And so look at this problem. You, you can't assume that scientific knowledge is superior to indigenous wisdom because it makes collaboration impossible. And, you know, I, that's, that's what I've always been about is, is let's use the cutting edge science that we have. We've got to re completely redo the way we look at water. That first in time, first in right is is an old dog that needs to be put to bed. And so, but, you know, like my neighbor said the other day, he's a farmer. He has 300 acres of alfalfa here in northern Utah. He said to me, because he knows I'm kind of hot on the trail of the water users. And he said to me, son, you can take my wife and my kids, but you better not take my water. <laughs> and so, you know, you're talking about serious business here. And the way we've been doing things the last 150 years, you know, those who have it are good. Right. They're good with the status quo. Those of us who are worried about our futures and the futures for our kids we worry about that stuff. So we've got to be willing to change the bottom line. And yeah, I, I love the, we've got to include wisdom in all of this conversation. And so you've got these people, they have their water right now, but are they looking yeah. into the future and are they looking at short-term versus long-term? And the truth is you might have your water now. That doesn't mean it's always going to be there. The elephant in the room is climate change, isn't it? Yep. I mean, we got record-breaking water here this year. And while I think that is the most wonderful thing in the world, I think for our legislators and others, it's going, it, it, it gives them false hope that, ah, what water crisis? Right. You know, and that absolutely is the wrong message we need to be talking about. So. And I think that's been the biggest challenge when we talk about climate change and the issues around it. It's it's a long-term approach. It is years, years, and years, and years, and we still, as a society, look at it in short term. You know, oh, we've the snowpack has been great this yeah. year. But you know what? That's one out of the last four years it's been great. So what yeah. happens in the next three years or the next four years? If we don't get 10 years of this type of snowpack, it doesn't really doesn't mean much. Sure. And you know what? The, the biggest problem for me, we know what to do. We know what the drivers of climate change are. We know all of these things, but we fail to act. And we fail to act because we haven't incorporated values with knowledge. And until we start incorporating those values with knowledge, we're going to be in the same cycle of extraction that we've been in for the last 200 years. Where do you think those shifts 
as you said, you know, you, you can science it as much as you want, but at the end of the day, if climate is changing and the, and the water isn't falling out of the sky, uh, the basins are going to dry out. You can only science your way out of so many problems. So, the, sure. so, so part of the solution, as you suggest, is, is combining you know, our best maybe scientific and technological advances, but combining that with a, an indigenous wisdom. What are tangible ways that we can start making these shifts? Some of it is attitudinal, right? I would say most of it is. <laughs> I had this thought the other day driving home. I've really been pretty vocal against the legislature and the governor recently here in Utah um, because the governor sent out a tweet on Twitter that he's put together this task force of stakeholders. And I'm looking at this thing and there's about 14 people on it, ranchers, farmers, businessmen. And I'm looking at the list and I'm going, man, this looks like Bishop's Lodge. You know who's (laughs) not on the list? Indigenous voices. That indigenous perspective is not on the list. But then I had, you guys, I had this aha moment. I thought, and panic for a second as I'm driving down I-15. What if the governor calls me and says, you're invited to the table now, and we can't wait to hear what you're going to do to solve the problem? You know, I've thought about that a lot, and I've thought that, and like I said earlier with a couple of those quotes, I I can't offer the science, but what I can offer is, is, values and a way maybe of looking at thing that changes people's hearts because you can read something and and not be sold on it and, and, and until you buy into it until something changes within yourself those values change that you want to be better stewards that you want to look at the earth in a way that uh, is kin you can't really drive real change until that happens within each one of us. And so, you know, when I talk about incorporating values and when I talk about uh, all of those things, it's through, and that's why I love storytelling. I think because people will always forget facts and figures about history or about anything, but people will never forget how they felt when they hear a story. And I think that's what's going to take place is You've got to want want to change yourself, and collectively, if we all get on board with this, you know, we have a chance. I, I'm afraid people will act. You know, one one way or the other, people are going to do the right thing. But for some people, it's going to be when the government tells you you can only use water on Tuesday and Thursdays because there's no water. I mean, they're going to be forced to make that change. And I'm advocating for let's do all we can to change our own uh, paradigm now. So we want to do this. We want to steward it because I'm looking at this resource as kin now and not as uh, a resource that can be extracted or depleted. So, you know, we got to change hearts more than anything else. And that takes starts one at a time. This is a really valuable conversation, Darren. I really appreciate your time and thoughts. I brought up as a trivia question, talk about numbers and dates that people can forget, right? Uh, When was the Colorado River Compact signed? Yeah, it was signed just over 100 years ago in November of 1922, I believe. 
And, so, and, and why is it so important? Why is that compact so important? This is this old news, right? 100 plus years ago. Why is that moment so important to the West? Man, it, it's, it's important because, you know, Manifest Destiny, and everybody talks about Manifest Destiny as about a land grab because it was a God-given right to conquer the West. And it was about land. But to me, Manifest Destiny was more about water in the West because land in the West without water is useless. And so the Colorado River is the largest water source, fresh water that we have out West that feeds millions and millions of people and meets all of their needs. And that waterway more than any other needs to be protected at all costs. And when we gave away twice as much water that was actually even there in 1922, I mean, think about the problems that's creating now. And so, you know, with with so many more people and so many more things to do. So uh, it's, it's vital that we are willing to have enough guts to make some hard decisions here going forward. And, and they're not hard decisions. They're hard decisions for the people that are the major users. And so, but we've got to make those changes. Yeah, because we don't want to end up where we're telling stories about when the water finally ran out. <laughs> remember you know, when? Yeah, you're yeah. not going to remember the date of the Colorado River Compact or the exact date that Salt, the Great Salt Lake went dry. But you'll remember, you'll be telling stories of the effects of when water ran out. So, sure. Yeah, we don't want to get to that point. So, we really want to thank you, Darren, for joining us today for. Everyone who is willing to take that next step and willing to uh, look at your own personal values and, and maybe think it's time to create that paradigm shift, please, to learn more, go to wudaagua.org. That is W-U-D-A-O-G-W-A.org. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Jamin Anderson and Diana Perez. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.